Welcome to the Grow With It podcast, a podcast about operationalizing your data to grow faster. My name is Michael Sharkey, co-founder and CEO of Auto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jesus Requina, VP of Growth at Figma. Our goal is that you leave each episode with practical and actionable insights from leading experts in data and growth. Let's get into this week's episode. AI doesn't make us dumber on KPIs. Like you were talking about like open and, and click rate. And for example, something that happened to me at Auxilio was we were very proud that our open and click rate were going up for activation. But then when we did a control and test group, actually the people who were getting the emails were getting less active in the platform. And it was because they were very confusing. So the more people were opening and clicking it, the more like, confused the hell is they this? were. So in the end, we killed <laughs> all emails. And that was better. And then from there, we started from the ground up again. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Like, yeah, optimizing for the wrong thing. I think that's why it's important that you train the AI on all the data and the outcomes. And yeah, like rather than just like writing better copy or, or a subject line or, or whatever it is. But yeah, it is interesting. I think it's just having the data structured like correctly to do it. Like that's the biggest challenge. I, I talk to companies all the time and it's like, oh, yeah, we have our data in BigQuery or Snowflake, and then they just can't get access to it. It's like, how are you going to freaking train AI? You can't even get access to your data. Like, it's it's nuts how stupid. And they don't even know how to pick KPIs. I actually think that picking KPIs is a big part of doing experiments, where a lot of people get that wrong. Can we start there? Because I think the discussion last time you talked about, I don't know, maybe we can use some of what we've discussed so far, but the whole idea of, like, quality of... Uh, to quantitative data that you talked about last time, which a lot of people don't talk about. I, I just think it's so interesting. I like how Mike phrased that conversation. Like, why should you care about metrics first? I think that metrics, in my mind, are very important, mostly because if you pick the right, the wrong metric, you'll try to optimize something, and maybe you will, but it's the wrong metric. So you get to a point where it's actually worse. Like the example that I was giving you, like we were doing a lot of experiments on emails trying to optimize for open and click rates. And we increased open and click rate a lot. And we only figured out that for activation emails, we should care about activation a couple of months later. And when we did the control and test group, like 90% got the emails, 10% didn't get any email we saw that activation was a lot worse for people who got the email. And uh, as I said, like when we were doing the, the research, it was very, very interesting that what they told us is that the emails were very confusing. So they were like, oh, fuck it. I'm not going to try this platform anymore. And something that we started to think about later was that all of the KPIs that we pick need to be somehow linkable to the bottom line. So either customer, user or revenue, and mostly revenue. And in our case, open and click rate was not relatable to revenue, but activation rates eventually was. And after that, we put so much attention into actually picking the right KPIs, because otherwise you might spend months optimizing something which hurts your revenue. How yeah, did that change the, the experiments that you were doing, Gonto? Did that change dramatically the kind of experiments? 
it did. It did change a lot of the experiments because, for example, the other thing, other thing that's happened in the past before this was like we were doing ads optimizing for signups and we weren't thinking about activated signups. So we spent 200K getting signups that never tried the product. So I did they get to activation. Once we used that, um, the ads started to improve. But once we did that, the ads were focused on different countries. They were focused on different messaging and on different platforms. Um, so I think starting to think more about the right type of KPIs that influence the revenue will drive how you think about the experiments and how you improve them. And I think most companies spend very little time thinking about KPIs. Why do you think we're still stuck? Like, I, I come across people all the time that are still talking about open rates and click rates. And sure, they matter to understand, like, are people reading the, the stuff you're putting out? But, like, and you, you're working with a lot of companies. Why do you think they struggle with KPIs and, and not focusing on the right stuff? Because everybody wants to see, to see things that improve. Nobody wants to see things that are worse. So I think we have an unconscious bias to drive KPIs that are easier to improve or are more closer related. And because of that, we pick those. Measuring an open and click rate is much easier to do. And it's a much more direct correlation to influence versus an activation rate. Activation is much further along. So it means the correlation is lower. And measuring it, doing a contrast test group, getting the data is much harder. So because of that, we're like, oh, these are the KPIs that we have. Or it's like, oh, these KPIs are very directable, directly influenceable, let's say, where the others are not. So I think people are scared a lot of times about being vulnerable and seeing that the numbers suck in the beginning and trying to optimize them. And maybe your first five experiments will suck and it's okay. Like that's the, 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 the main thing. But if you see, no, it's going up to the right, like, okay, we're going to pick an easier metric to, to influence or, or to change. I agree. I think it's just being vulnerable. A lot of people can can just say like this fails. We're failing miserably. A lot of people struggle with that. So like this is not working. Um, and when you get obsessed with what you have to move, whether it's working or not, what you're doing, then you start becoming better. That's exactly right. I agree. And to me, it's it's the it's the ego. Like it's the ego of I don't want to fail, and it's not accepting that to do better. You have to fail. And everybody says that. Like, I've heard it in so many podcasts about growth. But the problem is that it's very hard to internalize it and really do it because all of us have egos. And the higher your role is, oh, I'm the CMO of this big company, the bigger ego you have and the harder it is to continue to fail. That's why if you look at startups, I think startups are failing and doing more experiments than bigger ones. It's you're more scared of hurting your ego. And also because of like what Daniel Kahneman says of the thinking fast and slow, it's prospect theory. You're more scared of losing because losing X hurts you twice as winning X, assuming that X is the same value. So because of that, we're so scared to lose what we got that we don't even want to try. I agree. How did you think, um, I think there's something in relation to that also that um, great companies are good at making um sound hypothesis so what have you learned in your you've done so many of these going but what have you learned about making good hypothesis let's let's assume that we don't have ego we're vulnerable that we suck at this we're really bad we're gonna get good at this we know that the metric we found the metric is gonna be activations or whatever um what have you learned that helped um 
build good hypotheses because I think that's part of being successful too. I agree. I think thing number one, which I think is the easiest to do, is all of your hypotheses need to look the same because they need to be comparable. So you need to have some format that you use in all of them. For example, something I always do is because we saw in this qualitative or qualitative feedback, this, we expect that doing this change will get, will change this KPI to get it to this goal in this time. The format is guiding you at least on what things you need to, to think about. So that's, I think, is number one, and it's the easier to do. The second one, and this is the one that I think is the most important that most companies don't want to do is Everybody talks that growth is about data, and that's it. That's the main thing they talk about. But in reality, building hypotheses on what to change, I think is partly based on data, but in big part, it's also based on your gut feeling. It's also based on what do I think based on my experience, based on what I've talked to customers, based on what I've seen that is going to help change this. A lot of people are scared to use their gut feeling because what if I'm wrong? Again, I'm like it's the vulnerability as well of that. And because of that, they try to only use data. But when you're starting a startup, you have no quantitative data. And sometimes when you have quantitative data, you don't have the exact events or the exact metric or the exact thing that you need. However, if you do qualitative interviews, you do research, you interview people, you talk to them, if you talk to five or six, it's not statistically significant, but you get that feeling of, based on what people are telling me, what I think we should do. And I think using that is, is important to build really good hypotheses on, 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 on your experiments. Last comment on this one is, I'm telling you about like, okay, for this gut feeling, I need to use my experience. But something I think is important for growth team is to have a mix of people who have a lot of experience and people who have no experience. Because people who have with experience will come with their knowing what they've done and worked or didn't, but they will come with their biases on what can and cannot be done based on what they've done in the past. People with no experience will not have the experience to know what worked and what didn't, but they will not have bias or constraints on what they should and should not do. So because of that, they might come up with a crazy wild idea that is actually a fantastic idea to implement that nobody has done in the past. Something I see a lot with the hypothesis is that they try to do what everybody does, but better. And I have a big mantra that is, it's, it's better to be different than better. If you do something that is kind of so-so, but it's different, it's going to work a lot better than something that is the same as everybody else, but 2x better. What is your biggest example in your career of that, Gonto? You may have found times where that was to be true. Yeah, so for example, I'll give you a, a few examples. Um, one of them that was fascinating at Zero was like, Everybody was writing um, content for single sign-on, for refresh tokens, and doing like very deep articles on how to implement it, what to do, um, and using their technology. When we started to interview engineers, uh, what they told us was that they didn't give a shit about authentication and that they got stuck sometimes and they Googled what they got stuck. So one of the things that we did then when we talked to others, they were like, oh, you're insane, was we built hundreds of landing pages, one for each potential error that they could get, implementing it with Angular, with React, with Next.js. And for each of them, we help them solve the problem. And then we softly told them, like, hey, if you eventually want to learn more about Zero, you can. 
and getting so many hundreds of pages instead of just one that solves each, each error. Also another thing that was very weird, but in the end, it's something that works for us um, very, very well. The other one that is also very crazy is most people go to conferences to speak because of the attendees. You want to present in a conference because 500 people, 2,000 people will hear what you have to say, and eventually they might try your product. We thought, and I still think, uh, of conferences differently. That's something, for example, that we do with Bercel now. We think about conferences in a way of who are the speakers. Like We want to build relationships with speakers who are known in the community, who are influencers on Twitter, and that other people follow them. So our approach was we pick conferences based on the speakers who are going, so that at least we meet them two, three, four times every year. We go do something with them where we connect, we build a relationship, and because of that, they follow us and they start sharing our content. So then we become a thought leader in the space because all of the speakers who are the known people are sharing our content and what we say based on the fact that we saw them three or four times a year. So thinking about conferences from a speaker perspective, something that everybody would tell you like, you're insane. You go to a conference for the attendees, not for the speakers. But it was something that worked really well um, for, for us. Do you have like a, a set playbook when you think of, of these, like Auth0 and then all, all of the experience you've had after? Do you now have like a set playbook where you're like, this is what I do? Or, or are you looking at each opportunity really differently? Like, are there things that you're repeating, like that speaker thing over and over now? Or it's every time you're looking at like different, uh, you know, like for different strategies. What I would say is that any like small improvements, we do always the same. Like you have an ads page, you remove navigation. You make sure that everything is above the fold. On the left or the right, you have the form fields. You put less. On the, on the other side, you put some logos or some validation. But all of those don't give you like a step change. They give you incremental improvements. For those, we typically do the same thing and we use the same thing. But for the real changes, the step changes that will make or break a startup, they are all different, but they all start with the same process, which is interviews. Like I, I always start with... First, define who is the target market. Like some companies that target developers will tell you, oh, well, our target market is developers. Developers are not the same. It's not the same a front-end developer, than a back-end developer, than a site reliability engineer, than a DevOps, than a security engineer. So first is, let's do work to define who and what type of developer it is. Once you find them, it's about doing interviews to understand their habits. The other mistake I see companies do is companies always try to interview people who are already their customers. People who are already your customers is people you've already found. So number one, they found you already. Number two, maybe they are the customers you've had in the past, but not the customers you want to have in the future. And what you should look for is the customers you want to have in the future that have not discovered you. So based off of that, um, we start looking for some of these front-end engineers, let's say. And you look them on LinkedIn, sending them email, you look them on Twitter, and you basically offer them money for 20 minutes of their time to ask them for their habits, and you tell them you will not sell nor talk about the product. In those interviews, the questions are more around, when are you interested um, in learning about deployments? 
Who are you interested about deployments? How do you learn about it? Do you Google? Do you talk to friends? Do you go to any conference? Do you go to meetups? Are there people that you follow? Where do you follow them? Do you, are you part of any communities? Do you participate? Which ones? How do you want to learn more about that? What apps do you typically use in your phone and in the computer? How? How do you engage with this? Is it a passion and you work on this all day long or it's just a job? And it's more about understanding their personas. And after you talk to, depending on the on, on the company, to seven to 10 of them, there's some similarities and some things that are common among all. And then I think growth is about showing up. I think if you show up multiple times on the habits that the person already does, eventually they'll try it out. So then all of these step changes come from ideas that come from doing this research and then thinking creatively about this with the team, using the gut feeling, and then implementing some of them. The other thing that we do in the beginning that is very important is in the beginning, sometimes you don't have as many, as much traffic. So I'm a big believer of doing two experiments that are completely different. Because if they are completely different, you basically need less samples to get something that is statistically significant. So you start with very different tests, one from the other, and all come from doing this gut feeling, creative brainstorming based on the research habits interviews you've done um, with these folks. So how do you, like when you start doing these experiments, I'd assume like you're talking about that whole principle of like, you know, six, seven touches before they're going to engage with you. How do you then measure that? And do you measure, are you, are you looking at activation that early on uh, in, in that process? Or are you just saying, hey, we could just get a roll with this strategy for six months and see what happens? First thing I will say is that attribution is fucked up and very hard. Like I think <laughs> if somebody really figures out attribution for growth and marketing, like that's it. Our job will be so, so much easier. So I'll start with a disclaimer. But then based off of that, depending on where we are experimenting about, we try different things. So what I'll tell you, for example, is when we do content, a lot of times we're doing content because we want people to find us for the first time that don't know of us. So in those, we do first touch attribution for that content and then see if they sign up. For the rest, I only do linear attribution to see like all of the touch points that touch them and assign the same value to all. Because I personally don't believe in any of the other models like U-shape, W-shape. I think they're all full of chats because you're assigning a arbitrary percentage of importance to each touch point and you don't know what's happening. So that in reality doesn't work. One thing we do in the beginning, that is a lot of work. That is one of the things that has worked the most with the teams that I've worked with is manual attribution. In the beginning, when we find an opportunity, what we do is every Monday, the growth person or demand gen person um, will go over all of, the all of the opportunities for their region or their area, and they will look into Gong for like the recorded conversations. They will look into all of the emails. They will look into what conferences they go. And based off of that, they will look into what was the catalyst based on reading the conversation, reading the transcripts and everything. Based off of that, we attribute the catalyst to one of the activities or one of the things um, that we have done. It's a lot of work. And maybe at scale, it's very hard to do. But in the beginning, first, it gives you a real idea of what's working and what's not. And the second and most important one is our growth people, because they had to do the manual work every Monday for four hours every Monday, 
they have intimate knowledge in what they did and worked, what didn't, and why. And because of that, they are now much better at thinking new experiments and new ideas to come up with. So they are better at using their creativity or their gut feeling because they spent the time to look at so many conversations and so many like full story recordings and stuff like that. So it's something that's controversial. Most people will hate because everybody wants to automate everything. But I'm personally a big believer in manual attribution. Yeah, I think attribution is incredibly hard and it's something that like I've struggled with for years, like trying to figure it out because it's just one of those things that it's really hard to apply like some algorithm to <laughs> when it's human behavior. Touching on like the attribution side of things, I'm really curious, uh, not attribution, the activation piece. How, like, do you have some sort of like defined definition of activation or at least some parameters that you look at to, to have... To, to get to that activation point because they know everyone seems to have a different story or, or a different theory around what is activated in my mind activation is the moment where the user is like holy shit this product is amazing i want to continue using it so to me it starts with qualitative feedback like we start with interviews to users that are retained eight months into the future and users that are not retained eight months into the future and we ask them when was the time that you felt something was like, whoa, about the product or the ones that were not retained eight months after we asked them, hey, what happened? Why didn't you like it? We compare the answers and we try to find three or four answers that could potentially be our aha moment or our activation metric. Based off of that, then we look at correlation between them and retention. So we look people who have experienced like aha moment A. How many of them were retained eight months into the future? Same for B, same for C, same for D. And then once we do that for all of them, we'll pick the one that has the highest correlation. And then finally, we look into, I think it's called histogram, um, the chart, which tells you like, okay, how many people have experienced that one day? How many people have been in two, three, four, blah? And again, we do the same correlation between how many of them have done that and then stayed retained with that. And based off of that, we have now, okay, how much time do they need to get to the hub moments? And then retention, how many times do they need to experience it every week, day, or month so that they stay um, with us? This is all, of course, if you have data. If you don't have data because you're studying, I think it starts with qualitative feedback and gut feeling. You ask interviews, you will get three or four, and you'll pick one. And then you review it maybe every three or six months to see if it still makes sense or if you should try the others. Or you can set up the events and say, I think that's a very good idea. Going to you must say, well, these are the four things that the user have saying. Let's implement the event tracking and then learn with data validate some of those but i agree most of the time talking to the user will give you 80 percent of the answer the validation is just to be like 90 something percent accurate or whatever most growth teams don't talk to the user enough i think it's actually a true also for product marketing like i know why like i've heard from them like oh no we have like we we are so busy running experiments, checking the data, working with the engineering team, that we don't have time to talk to users or to prospects. And that's the single most important thing that I think will drive your creativity on what to do next and why. Also, the other thing is that data is less scary. Data is one way. 
Like one plus one is two, and that's it. There's no other answer. It's the same when you look at data, listening to people, interviewing them, doing follow-up questions is very different. So being able to do that and then pick some of them is very scary because one plus one is not two. In some cases, it's three. For me, it's five. For others, it's six. So being okay with that and having the trust and the confidence in yourself to be able to do the interviews, pick some of them and try it out is hard. And I actually do think it requires experience and being, in some cases, burned by it. And the others feel extreme success by, oh, shit, we listen to the users and look at what we've done. We need to do more of this. But it's insane how some, I mean, it's not just growth teams, but product marketing teams or marketing teams. Um, even product teams, they might spend 80% of the time doing the wrong things. Like the classic content thing. I'm so busy creating content. Like you haven't talked to your user. You don't even know what content works, what content move anyone to do whatever you need to do. You don't even know what you want them to do in the first place. Um, I see that every day, every single day. It's incredible. Um, and prioritization, like uh, people struggle to prioritize. Like, well, if that's not valuable, what is the one thing that I need to do? Like, how has it been in your career? Going to what examples do you have around that? I agree. One thing that's before the example, one thing I think is interesting is like the CPO of Outsilo had a term that I love, which is how many levels of distance do I have to a customer? So he's the CPO. And if to talk to a customer, he needs to first check with the product manager, then with the customer success manager, then with account executive, and then you need to, you can talk to them. It's four levels of check. And Thinking about it, when your company grows, you have more and more levels of check. And the more levels of check, the worse your product becomes because the further away you are from them. I think it's the same for marketing and for all. So we should all try to be cautious about when we add these barriers and finding a way to break them or or do it differently or or, or separately. Like, I've seen this a lot with product marketing, that they don't have time to talk to customers. And it's the most single important thing um, that that they should do. For us, with with the growth team, we actually had a mandate that they needed to talk to at least X number of customers every quarter for each of them. And it was an OKR. Because without the OKR, they would not do it. Because there were other things that were more important. And it's crazy because OKRs shouldn't be for this. But if it drives behavior, we're doing it. Why do you think people, why do you think there is this behavior in tech, especially like that they just won't go and talk to people? It's very scary. It's hard to talk to people. Like I'm, I used to be a programmer. I'm a very extroverted programmer. So I'm a weird programmer, (laughs) but most people are more introvert and it's scary to talk to somebody who you don't know. And what if you're wasted time? What if you, like you always start with like five questions or six that you want to ask, but the meat, the real stuff comes from the real questions you ask them based on the answers. So I think people are scared to not know what to ask, scared to lose their time when they talk to these customers or to these people, and scared that what two or three people say is not the same that all of the audience will be. And in reality, if you do a good job of picking them and you have the confidence that you ask the right questions, it's going to be okay. What advice do you have for companies that work in bigger companies where um, you you might already have like a research group? So if you go and talk to users, the research group is going to tell, hey, actually, that's our job. Like you shouldn't go and be, you know, talking to users. Like what advice do you have for people that work in bigger bigger companies? 
I think when you're in a bigger company, it's very, very hard to talk to customers. Like I've seen them, like you have five hoops of approval. So I would start with prospects instead of customers, ideally, because prospects, you can just talk to them. Uh, you find them on Twitter, you find them on LinkedIn, and you just talk to them. And I don't think you need approval for that. A lot of people have this research thing, and they're like, oh, this is not my responsibility. But because of that, maybe the ideas don't work. In big companies, one of the biggest problems I think that exists is the handoff, where research will do the handoff and they'll give you some insights. Then marketing will read that and will send that to engineering to implement. Engineering will then implement. And in each handoff, there's some information that is being lost. That's why big companies are now starting to do these pods. So I think starting to think about how do we create a pod that is growth that has one person from engineering, one from marketing, one from research, and they all work together on the research. They all work together in engineering. It's a big change because then you don't have as much information lost in translation between the conversations and just talk to prospects if you can talk to, to customers in the beginning, because at least they'll give you some insights and some ideas and they are harder to reach and, and talk to. So it's such a good practice that Figma, our research team invites those pods into the interviews. So you actually, you in a growth marketing pod and you can go into the interviews one by one and sit there and listen. You can even answer and ask questions on the way. So I think that's a great advice going to 100%. I agree with that. And the one thing that I think is important is, again, sometimes it's good that the researcher shines interviews that they don't ask questions because they are so biased by the questions they've done in the past that maybe a marketer that has never done it has a great idea that they don't have it and they can start doing it in the future. So mixing and matching that a bit also helps. If you creativity and new things that are a step change come from a bit of chaos. If everything is a process, everything is always the same way, you will find always the same shitty results. I think you need some chaos and lack of process to be creative and have the step change that you need. It's a controlled chaos, but still. Yeah, I think that that was a point I wanted to make earlier is that it seems like a lot of people go out and see this is yet another sort of SaaS software checkbox where it's like, you know, we got research software. So now, now, now we're talking to the customer. Is, is, is that something like you would advise against? Is it just a case of like going out and doing this stuff? I, I guess it depends what stage you're at, but... It seems like in tech, our solution is always just go and get another app. It depends on your stage. Like there's a stage where you need to have some research team who, who helps and are and is working with you. But I think it's more about number one, including others. So what you said, Jesus, big believer, like you include others in the call. And the other ones is sometimes you change it and mix it up on purpose. It's like, okay, the researcher will always do the research, but once a month, they won't. They will show it and just listen to random questions that somebody else that have never done research um, has done. But I think in the beginning, it's about when you're when you're a small startup, it's reducing the steps you need to talk to a customer. So in the beginning, it can't be that, oh, I want to talk to a customer, so I need to talk to research. Research needs to talk to the CSM, and the CSM will then talk to the, the customer. That, I think, should not happen until you have more than 1,000 people in the company. If you have less, you should decrease that number of, of, of levels of distances that you have from the customer and just try to have the teams be able to talk to them. Of course, you can't have one customer being researched 100 times. So that's maybe the only check that you do. You check, okay, we can only talk to this customer to for research once a quarter. 
Okay, what others can we find? What can we do? And it's more about thinking in those type of restraints from the customer perspective versus from the company. Because the company does it to have the objective that the customer is not disturbed all the time. But instead of starting from a customer mentality, it starts from a company mentality. The customer mentality is, I will not do research with them more than once every three months, and we'll find a way to do that, but everybody can research and talk to everybody in the beginning. Once you've sort of found insights from this research or come up with ideas, and I guess this depends on the scale, how do you then decide what to do? Is it just a case of like going back to what you said before around gut instinct and then saying, how are we going to measure this and just doing it? Or do you have some sort of methodology to share that like, you know, people can take away from this? The first step is still gut feeling. Like the first step will be, okay, if I run this experiment, you have a KPI, The first thing you need to do based on that feeling is how much do I think this experiment will change the KPI? Will it change it 2%, 12%, 35%, or 86%? Because it's very different if you do one or the other. Of course, you look at similar experiments you've done in the past to get an idea of what is the range. But the number is a gut feeling. Once you have that number from a gut feeling, um, and, uh, and, and assuming you assign the same gut feeling or similar gut feeling style to all of your experiments, what you experiment is which one will change the bottom line the most. So if I have one change that will inc- improve 12% in activation and one change that will improve 17% in sign up, one would think first, oh, we need to do sign up. But in reality, if you look at the conversion from sign-up to activation, and you see that only 50% of the sign-ups are activated, that means that a 17% increase in sign-up is the same as an 8.5% increase in activation. That means that the 12% from the test two of 12% increase in activation is better than that 8.5. So it's about where is the minimum denominator between all of these experiments where I can compare them equal. Sometimes you can move sign up to activate it like this example and you check it out. Others, you need to go all the way down to revenue or to conversions. But you need to find a way to compare apples to apples, which experiment, even if it's based on the gut feeling, will change the bottom line the most. Typically, and this is what I've seen in startups, you should not trust my word, but typically you start with sign-up tests, then you move to activation, then you move to retention, and then you move to pricing. That's what I've seen in most growth teams, but that doesn't have to be the case. Like I actually think it's important to, to check out which one will, will impact the bottom line the, the most. I saw in a recent LinkedIn post, you mentioned at Auth0, you had call to actions like talk to sales, sign up. I, th- I think there was one other, maybe like a demo request or something like that. Do you always just optimize for sign up? I, I know like there's this whole idea around the PLG motion, but and then how do you quantify those in relation to say activation downstream or do you not even bother? It's a very hard choice. And I think in some of them, it's more of a company decision of guardrails versus a this is what we should do. So I'll give you an example. Like, and if you're doing a developer product, in the beginning, you want to have more users just use the platform. So if they like it, they talk to others. You don't want to get revenue in the beginning. So maybe even if book a demo, optimizing book a demo will bring you more revenue in the beginning, maybe you still prioritize signups because you want more people to be retaining the platform and eventually they will talk to others and more will come. But there's a certain point in time where you need to focus more on revenue. Sorry. Now I was gonna. I was gonna say I fully agree. I need. I think it depends on the 
business model. You have a freemium model and you want virality. Maybe you you should just bring people that have the aha moment. Um, if you have a trial that is paid and you probably want to focus on conversion of that trial to the credit card or whatnot. So I think your business model and your virality and your product will dictate where you focus on. And normally leadership should know this by heart, but yeah. I agree, but I think the stage as well. So for Outsidio in the beginning was all signups, but then there was a moment in time where we were at like 40 million in ARR. We were need to get to 80 because we were doubling that year. And with just signups, we weren't going to get it. So that year, we made the conscious decision to, to focus on click on talk to sales because one talk to sales was worth 326 signups in revenue. And I do all talk to sales because otherwise we won't hit the revenue goal. Once we hit the revenue goal and we were doing better, we were like, okay, it's time to go back to focusing on signups because now we're going to have more activation and more retention. So it's also something fluid that I think as, as time goes by, it starts changing and you can make a conscious decision of, okay, these six months we're going to focus on this, the other ones we're going to focus on this other thing, but you need to have some guardrails. I'm a big believer that growth teams should have guardrails. For example, I think that for any product that focuses on developer designers or those type of ICs, you need and must have transparency on pricing, meaning it has to be on the website. You can have an enterprise plan, but pricing has to be there. Maybe if I hide all plans and I only put talk to us, we'll have more conversion and we'll have more talk to demo because that's the only thing they can do. But as a principle and as a team, we don't believe in that because we think that even though it might work in the short term on the experiments, I think that in the long term, it will hurt us most. So that one, it's a no-go. We will never experiment on that, even if it's better. So having those type of guardrails, I also think is important for, for growth teams. How do you rally your team around when you want to be flexible, Gonto? So you say your team, you know, look, we're focusing on sign up now, go crazy. And now like, stop sign up. We're going to focus on demo requests. How do you make your team to follow that kind of shift? It's, it's hard, to be honest. But the main thing that we would do on that is you actually explain the numbers in the old hands. Like every month on the all hands with them, we were showing our marketing dashboard and showing how our signups are converting into activation, retention, revenue, what are the goals, where we're hitting, et cetera. And when we, like before a quarter that we wanted to switch to like book a demo, we were showing how, look, this has been our growth in signups. You've done this number of experiments. Some have worked, so it increased this bit, but this is not enough to get to the running number. So what do you think we should do? So it's asking them and making them part of the decision and part of the problem by looking at the data um, so that they think about it as, as, as well. But I think constantly showing them in every other hands how we as leaders look at the data, think about it and try to plan is the way that we include them in the decision. There's, think, there's some thought behind it. What does an ideal team look like to you, you know, if you've got like a four-person team or, I mean, I don't want to put a number around it, but if, you, if you're just starting out and you, you have to pick your ideal team in an organization, what are the roles? Who are they? I mean, you mentioned before people who literally had no experience and then some who did to stop that uh, idea of bias, but who? Who is it? <laughs> for product growth or for top-down or for what type of company? I think for product-led growth is probably the most interesting at the moment. 
I do believe that, uh, as you said, like some people will experience some without key, I would say 50-50 ideally, um, but it, it doesn't have to be exactly like that. But I think in the beginning, you get one growth manager who will be a person who is basically thinking with you, the experiments, doing the project management of the team and just moving it forward. And ideally in the beginning, they're also the ones who will check the data because we won't have money to hire data analysts. So they should project manage and look at the data. Ideally you have two engineers. I think two engineers is enough to do some changes fast and where they don't feel so alone that they can't work with each other. I think you need to get a, a designer um, as well. And then depending on what area of marketing you would think you want to focus on first, you'd pick the marketer. So it could be an SEO person, or it could be a content person, or it could be some area of marketing. So I think the marketing one will change depending on where you want to focus on um, in the beginning. On the designer, I actually think it's very important to look for a growth designer. I've worked with so many designers that are pixel perfect. Growth doesn't work with pixel perfect. And those designers are maybe great for product because they want to make sure the experience is great, the UX is great, everything is fantastic, but they are not fast. In growth, it's better to have somebody that is faster and maybe it's 80% there than somebody who is slow and it's 100% there. Same applies to engineering. I think growth teams shouldn't maintain any of the code that they build. So they should basically just be able to fix it with shitty code or with spaghetti code. We have a saying in Argentina where I'm from that is atarlo con alambres, which I don't even know how to translate it. But the idea is like, you just make it work however, and it will eventually crash, but it doesn't It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so that is the other thing that I think is important for, for the engineers. That will be the first team that, that I will have, which is maybe like five people um, in total. It sounds like though you 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 really start to think through that team almost like and given your background as, as a developer almost like a, a small development team right like you're building like a company within exactly because the idea is that they're autonomous enough they have engineers they have designers they have marketers and they have a leader who can help us like follow some type of process um to get there i'll give you another example that is crazy like ramp um, the B2B credit card is one of our customers. And with RAMP, we actually have a team of engineers that is working with us for outbound, which sounds insane, but our outbound emails are fully automated and fully personalized. Like we're looking into data for so many places to personalize it. Some cases we're doing like deep fakes on videos, or we're building custom GIFs with injected images from their Instagram or their Twitter or something like that. And those convert a lot better because they're like, holy shit, they spend so much time on me that I should, like, they feel guilty and they want to respond. <laughs> so it's crazy, but that outbound team that is performing really well and converting a lot actually has a lot of engineers. Yeah, which I've literally never heard before. That's crazy. You, you said last time we chatted, distribution is the new product. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> Distribution is the, is, is the new product. It's more about what, what I meant on distribution is that distribution is extremely important when you think of like who will see this. Like a lot of companies 
think about the product, what they do and why, but they don't think about how it's going to be distributed. Who is the target persona? How are they going to engage with it? Will they like it or not? What will be their experiences? And I, I, I actually read in the past that somebody was saying that second time founders focus on distribution more than products. Because if you build a fantastic product, but you don't know how to distribute it, it won't work. So distribution is the key thing. And distribution is about what we talked about before, finding the right persona. It's not developers. It's something that's more specific. It's understanding their habits and it's showing up in those habits. Awesome. I think, do you want to just wrap it up there, Jesus? Maybe maybe final thoughts from Gonto on um, early startups. Um, what would be a good wrapping question, Mike? I think given the economic you're, you're environment, like can't raise funding, people are out there, maybe like not much cash in the bank, like how can they take advantage of this period would be interesting if that's something that you, you want to take a stab I think that right now with the current situation and everything that's going on, everybody's looking for things that you can do with a low CAC, with a low customer acquisition cost. In the past, growth at all costs meant that companies were spending a shitload of money on ads. If you look at the last earnings call from Facebook, from Twitter, from Google, neither of, of them hit the revenue goals for ads. And it's likely because people are going back on their spend on ads. That means that now it's not about the ads. It's about other ways on, on, on how you can do it. An example could be what we just chatted about on ramp. Maybe hiring two engineers for an entire year is cheaper than what you do on ads. And they can do something that is so personalized when you're doing outbound that maybe you don't need as many SDRs to hire because it's so personalized, it looks so perfect that it just works. In Ramp, they have a lot less SDRs than a company at their, at their size because there are these two engineers that are working on doing outbound and doing these emails. The same applies for organic stuff that you build. Like when I talked about going to conferences and meeting speakers, so that then you become a thought leader and they share about you. That is not that expensive. You pay the flights, the, you pay the hotel, but then the conferences are free because you're speaking there and building relationships is free. It's like the beers that you spend drinking with them. And then it's about the content that you write. But starting to think more creatively into these ways where it's not about ads, it's like, what are the other experiences or things that these people can live throughout what they're doing their day to day that can actually create more lasting revenue for you is something I think is, is important. And it, what I like about these times, um, what I don't like is that my stock is going down that I own. But what I like about these, these times is that it makes people be more creative and not just throw money at the problem. I think in the past, people just... Yeah, let's do more ads. Yeah, let's hire more SDRs. And now it's where the real creativity um, comes comes in. Love that, Gonzo. Yeah, your, this was your the good. Is contagious. Thank you.